Postal Publishing, The Going Postal Cast, and Christopher Chapman present Incarceration, the serialized weekly podcast performed by the author, Christopher Chapman. For more information, visit www.goingpostalpublishing.com or email him at goingpostalpublishing at gmail.com. This podcast is not suitable for children. It has violence, gore, and lots and lots of naughty words. If you can't handle that, go somewhere else. And now, on with the story, or whatever other crap I decide to come up with. Chapter 5 Chief of Police Randy Thompson was as upset as he could remember. His stomach had soured to the point where he thought he would vomit. He couldn't do that. There was far too much at stake. He needed to keep a clear mind to solve the dilemma he now faced. Five hours. That's how much time he'd spent at the Norman house going over every shred of evidence. Every passing second brought him no closer to breaking the case open, nor did it give him a clue as to who could be behind the murders. He didn't even have an idea who he could bring in for questioning. This crime scene was so bizarre that it left him wondering how he would proceed from here on out. He had no idea who could have done something like this. So far, the crime scene had yielded very few clues. The front door, smashed inward by the intruder, had yet to produce a single useful clue. There were no fingerprints or knowledge of what the intruder had used to gain entry. His experts informed him that the door hadn't been kicked in. They said that a weapon had been used to slice through the lock. A strange substance had been found on the door, but the lab hadn't gotten back to him with the results. He stared at the busted door. He marveled at the idea that somebody had broken into this house with the door locked when there must have been hundreds of Niagara homes that hadn't locked their doors last night. To pick this house seemed strange. Randy chuckled, knowing that, thanks to this, there would be hundreds of homes locking their doors for the first time tonight. That was another thing about small towns. People always seem to take more interest in things when it happens near them. There could be a hundred deaths in Green Bay and nobody here would blink an eye. In Niagara, one murder down the block meant that their world has begun crumbling around them. Randy left the crime scene, not really sure what he was going to do next. He was exhausted and considered going home. A few hours of sleep would work wonders for him. He knew, however, that he couldn't do that. This was the most important case in a long time for Niagara. Hell, it may very well be the most important case in Niagara's history. He would have to check the records, but he didn't think that there was ever a time in Niagara's 93-year history when there had been a triple homicide. His mind coasted back through old stories that he'd heard shortly after taking the job. It was the job of the leaving chief to make sure that he was completely informed of Niagara's dark side, as little as there was to listen to. The list was short, thus easy enough to remember. He was aware of the last murder in Niagara, which happened about 15 years ago. That was a case that had never been solved, partially because there wasn't enough evidence to prove that it really was murder. As it was told to him, three kids were camping at a lake five miles out of town. It was a situation consisting of two teenage boys and one teenage girl. According to the various rumors, the girl was dating one of the boys. On this night, however, after drinking a large amount of alcohol, she engaged in sexual intercourse with the other boy. This enraged her boyfriend, causing him to drown her in the lake as revenge. Forensics experts determined that she was so intoxicated that she may have fallen in accidentally 
or that she hadn't put up a fight. The former chief was unable to turn the other boy against his friend. It was apparent that he feared his friend more than going to prison. It was a very unusual case with very unusual circumstances. He doubted if that case would ever be solved. For now, it stayed in the cold case files, which consisted of the one lone case. The only other murder that he was aware of preceded the drowning by a little more than a decade. That case was fairly simple, but had one similarity to the other, drinking. Three teenage kids, all boys, were drinking in an apartment just two blocks from where his office now sits. After one of the boys passed out on the couch, the others thought it would be funny to see what a shotgun would do to his face. They grabbed a shotgun, pressed it under his chin, and pulled the trigger. One of the boys hung himself two days after being sent to prison. The other, as far as he knew, is still rotting away in a prison cell. Randy knew that it was very unlikely that the youngster, now around 40 years old, would ever see the outside of a prison cell. It was a shame that everything bad about this town involved teenagers and drinking. He was relieved to know that drinking didn't seem to be a factor in this case and only one teenager was involved. It was sad that another youth had died. This was why he took all those classes. He needed to stay sharp and know what he was dealing with. One thing was starting to become more apparent. He was going to need some help. That help would come from an investigator from a big city. He didn't want the help, but needed the technology and experience they'd bring with them. If he waited too long, the evidence trail would grow cold. He needed to get somebody to look over his evidence for something that he may have missed. Taking classes make you more aware, but it doesn't replace the experience of having been involved in real-life cases. He decided that he would give it another day to see if he could come up with anything else. If not, he would bring in the professional. He opened his car door and slid inside. He sat for a moment behind the wheel, thinking everything over one last time. He slammed his fist down against the steering wheel, causing a loud blast of horn. Other officers, who had yet to leave the crime scene, looked at him with questioning looks on their faces. He waved to them, trying to make it seem as if he'd done it by accident. Most returned to their work, but some looked skeptical. He didn't really care what they thought. He started the engine and put the transmission into reverse. He backed out as an officer lifted the police tape. He aimed his car north towards Iron Mountain. The bodies of Brian, Carol, and Jesse Norman had been taken there for autopsies early this morning. He intended to find out if anything had been discovered about what may have been used as a murder weapon. The weapon was the key to this whole mess. He drove on, knowing that it was going to be a very long day. Chapter 6 Jason Rangel was in a lot of trouble. He'd been in the office for more than an hour before the principal, Terry Griffin, was able to calm down. Griffin was irate, possibly as irate of a man as Jason had ever seen. He yelled constantly and his face was as red as blood. Do you have any idea of what you could have done? Principal Griffin asked in one of his tirades. He paced back and forth through his office while Jason sat there, forced to endure the verbal assault. He could have been killed. I know that emotions are running high after what happened to Jesse Norman, but that's no excuse for what you did to Nathan. He could have killed her, Jason returned, so softly that he wasn't sure if he was heard. I understand that, Griffin continued. Nathan is going to be spending his own time in here after he's released from the hospital. Nobody needs to be hitting girls, but this doesn't excuse the trouble you're in. 
He's in the hospital because of what you did. He pointed towards Jason with an accusing finger. I understand you wanting to protect that girl, but you went overboard. I lost my temper, Jason admitted, a little louder than before. Damn right you lost your temper, Griffin paused while he appeared to be contemplating things. The redness in his face lessened. I'm expected to punish you for what you've done. I'm not sure as of yet of what that is going to be. For starters, I'm going to suspend you for three days. Jason went to stand, but stopped when Griffin raised his hand in a stop gesture. He's going to receive the same punishment. However, I'm going to recommend to the police, as well as your parents, that you take an anger management class. You're out of control and something needs to be done about it. Jason listened to every word, concentrating on every syllable. He could feel the anger, that all-powerful anger, building up inside of him once more. Was this guy really trying to get him to seek professional help concerning his anger? Was he really trying to say that his anger was out of control? Who was he to say that? Griffin picked up the telephone. He dialed a few numbers when Jason jumped out of his seat, grabbed the phone from Griffin's hand, and slammed it back down onto the cradle. How dare you, Jason snarled. Griffin sat there, staring back at him with a look of confusion and a little fear. I don't have an anger problem. I've never had an anger problem. That weasel got what he deserved. He paused, realizing that he'd just lost his temper again, contrary to what he was saying. It was too late, however. He had to finish this and see where it led him. Who are you to talk? You've got more skeletons in your closet than most people. Most of us know about it. Do you really want the rest of the world to know about your drinking problem? It was Griffin's turn to get angry. His face had gone from confusion to hatred in less than three seconds. If there was one topic that was off-limits with the principal, it was his drinking problem. Most of Niagara knew that Terry Griffin was an alcoholic that sought treatment several times, to no avail. He'd showed up to school a few times reeking of booze and slurring his words. There had been more than one occasion where Griffin had spent the entire day locked in his office, probably sleeping off the effects of a hangover. Don't you criticize me when we both know who the sick one is here, Jason continued. He found that he was now standing, looking down on his principal with an extended finger. We both know that you shouldn't even have this job. You must have some embarrassing photos of somebody on the school board, because your ass should have been canned years ago. He stopped, suddenly knowing that he'd taken it too far. That didn't eliminate the anger, but it took some of the edge off, giving him the ability to think more clearly. He sat back down in his chair, knowing that his punishment was about to get much steeper. To his surprise, it didn't. Griffin was speechless. After several minutes of awkward silence, he pointed towards the door and said, Go home. I don't want to see you for three days. Griffin's voice was weak and defeated. Jason had broken the man. He suspected that the principal would drown away his sorrows tonight behind a bottle of Jack Daniels. Good for him, he thought. It didn't really matter. He stood, feeling no sympathy for his principal, and stepped out of the office. He passed the secretary's desk and headed for the stairs, then the exit. He wasn't sticking around long enough for Griffin to change his mind and add to the punishment. He went straight home from school. There wasn't a whole lot else to do. The best that he could do was go home to face the music. He knew he would face it sooner or later. He wanted to get it out of the way. Why shouldn't he? He hadn't done anything wrong. He'd protected a girl from a bully that would have surely hurt her worse than he had already had. He did a good deed. So what if his anger got the best of him twice? He was being suspended for it. That was punishment enough. He didn't think that he needed any further punishment. 
that wasn't what his parents thought. He arrived at home 20 minutes after leaving school. His father, who did not have a happy expression on his face, greeted him at the door. What in the hell did you think you were doing? His father asked, sticking his nose directly up to Jason's. Jason didn't back down. He moved forward, pressing his nose against his father's until they mashed together. Their foreheads pressed against one another and their mouths opened, exposing their teeth. It was Jason's father who finally backed down, taking two steps back. His mother joined them, taking his dad by the arm. She looked concerned, but he knew that she would back the man she married, no matter how bad the argument became. If it ended with Jason being sent to the hospital, she would back his father 100%, even if it meant lying about how he'd been injured. Do you know who I just got off the phone with? His father asked. Was it Ed McMahon? Jason asked sarcastically. I heard you might already be a winner. He waited a moment as he became amused with his father's facial expressions. He wanted to see if he could get his face to turn an even darker shade of red. When he was satisfied, he said, I know that it was my principal. Did the drunk fill you in on what happened? You shouldn't talk about your principal that way, his mother chimed in. He's a man that you should show respect to. Did he tell you what happened, or did he give his version of the events? He said that you sent a kid to the hospital and verbally assaulted him, his father said. Oh, so he left out the part in which I defended a girl from being assaulted by the guy that ended up in the hospital. His father looked at him skeptically. Jason knew the look well. His father didn't believe him. He looked at him a few moments longer, appearing as if he was considering his words very carefully. He opened his mouth to speak, but closed it again. Finally, he spoke. You're saying that the guy that you beat up was attacking a woman? It came more as a statement than a question. Okay, that makes some sense. I mean, I'm having a difficult time believing you over your principal. But if what you say is true... He paused with his mouth open. Well, I guess that would justify why you got into a scrap with this kid. His father's use of the word scrap was like nails against a chalkboard. He didn't particularly care for his father's choice of language. It was at this point that he realized that he was overdoing it. Being angry was one thing, but nitpicking everything that his parents said or did was another. Why was he being like this? How could he have lost his temper to this extent? Jason took a deep breath, trying to think more clearly. He was in enough trouble as it was. There was no sense in letting his temper get him in even more trouble. What's my punishment? Jason asked his parents with no emotion in his voice. He figured there was no point in sugarcoating it. It was time to get down to the heart of the situation and accept the punishment that was coming his way. He was sure that it couldn't be too bad. After all, everything he'd done was to protect somebody else. His father looked at him, his expression changing to surprise. Perhaps he hadn't expected his son to be so forward about accepting the punishment. One month without a car, his father said quickly, as if the punishment had been predetermined long before Jason had arrived home. What? Jason growled. All of the anger that he tried to suppress came back in a black ball of hatred. He wanted to grab his father and choke him until he learned what a mistake he'd just made. He looked at his mom, knowing that she was no better for sticking up for him. How can you give me a month? I did it because he hit a girl. You did it because you lost your temper, his father said. I know how you get. Hell, we all know how you get. You lost your temper and attacked him. He fought back which made you all that much more angry. You beat him in this fight, but pride didn't stop. You couldn't stop. You kept hitting him until somebody stopped you, 
or you beat all the angry out of your system. The words rang all too true for Jason, but it didn't matter. His father could have given him a play-by-play of the entire event, pointing out everything that he'd done wrong, and that wouldn't have mattered one bit. Jason was noble for what he'd done. Why couldn't his father see that? Why couldn't either of them see that? His blood boiled with anger. What he'd felt earlier seemed to pale in comparison to what he was feeling now. He thought that his head would explode if he didn't do something about it immediately. I did not lose my fucking temper, Jason shouted at his parents. I defended her. I protected her. I, I, I hate both of you. Who in the hell do you think you two are? His parents stared at him in shock. It was the first time that he'd ever swore at them. It felt good to let the words out. It helped ease the pain in his mind. The anger slowly leaked away, allowing him to think more clearly. However, they were still a long way from getting out of this unscathed. You can't take my car away. It's mine. I paid for it. No, it isn't, his father said calmly, regaining some of his own composure. It's my name on that title. Technically, you don't own a damn thing. You can go ahead and call the police if you want, but they'll tell you the exact same thing. I'm legally within my rights, just as I am about sending you to anger management classes. What? It's a conditional one month without the car, his father continued. I want you to complete an anger management class before I'll let you behind the wheel again. I got off the phone with one just before you got here. I explained the situation and he thinks that he can help you get that damn temper under control. You can go freely, or I can force you to go. It's your choice, as long as you go. You're 17. I'm liable for everything you do, which means I own you. Jason didn't know what to say or think. Was his father really trying to do this to him? How could he do this to his only child? He didn't need anger management. If he needed anything, it was parents who were more supportive of their child. Now, I want you to get your ass into your room and stay there until morning, his father said after the silence between them had gone almost a minute. Your mother will bring you food at dinner time, but you are not to set foot down here. You do, I'll have to punish you man to man. You fought one fight today. I can see just how bloody your hands are. I wonder how lucky you'd feel about a second one. Jason wanted to call his father's bluff, but thought better of it. He saw the look in his eyes. He meant to do it. If there was one person in the world that he didn't want to get into a fight with, it was his father. First off, he was much larger than Jason. A former football player in college, he still had a great deal of size and strength that Jason just couldn't match. He was already sore from his fight with Nathan. His hands throbbed with pain and hadn't yet scabbed over. He suspected that a fight with his father would end badly. Jason found that he was as calm as he'd been since the fight with Nathan. He reached into his pocket and removed his car keys. He tossed them to his father, who caught them out of the air with one swipe of his hand. His eyes never left Jason's. I hate both of you, Jason said, his voice a growl, as he walked towards the stairs that would lead him to his room. Sometimes I think it would be better if I didn't have to deal with either one of you anymore. You should be careful what you wish for, his father said. You should never say things like that when you're angry. I mean every word of it, Jason said. He turned and raced up the stairs two at a time. He ran into his room and slammed the door shut. Books on shelves rattled with the impact. He lied down on his bed and waited for the day to be over with. Fifteen minutes later, he was asleep. Dreams of large, sharp teeth soon followed. 
You've been listening to the Going Postal Cast. For updates about Christopher Chapman, his stories, and future podcast happenings, be sure to go to goingpostalpublishing.com. If you want to follow along on Twitter, twitter.com slash goingpostalpub, or like him at facebook.com slash goingpostalpublishing. This podcast is copyright 2012, Going Postal Publishing. 